I'm Dane. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. If you want to skip the waffle and get straight to the story, just skip ahead about five minutes or so to five minutes twenty. That's when it starts. Coming to you this week with a brand new microphone, which is in <laughs> a... How would you describe it? It's inside a cardboard box. It's inside a cardboard <laughs> box, which is um, has inside that a laptop bag, a padded laptop bag, in an effort to try and reduce down the echo. Um, and despite all of our best efforts with the new mic, the new box and the laptop bag... All I can still hear is my children yelling <laughs> in the next room while playing Minecraft. So um, apologies if you hear them shrieking in the background. Hey-ho. <laughs> Lockdown world. Absolutely. Can't be helped. We want to start this week with a quick thanks to Skip Ramsey, who left us a comment on Facebook this week, saying, thanks for the ad. Got a review up on Apple Podcasts. Five star, of course. Bless him. Uh, really enjoyed the layback style, along with the great research. So thank you, Skip. He's yes, thank also you. been kind enough to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Would you like to read that out? Yeah, uh, Skip says, Criminally good fun. This has become a new favourite of mine. Dan and Elaine make it feel like you're sitting and sharing stories and laughs with two good friends. Well-researched and enjoyable. Give it a listen. You'll be happy you did. Thank you, Skip. And I love that because, obviously, we want you to feel like you're just sort of shooting the shit with us. Yeah. I feel a little bit guilty that it sounds like you're having a laugh with friends when we're talking about people being decapitated, but in all honesty, that's what we wanted to achieve when we set out, so yeah. kind of weird. Well, I mean, obviously that's it. With with all respect to, obviously, the victims, um, we didn't want it to be a really depressing podcast. Yeah. We also have another promo to play this week, which is the Fabulous Murder and More podcast. Take it away, Kira. Hi guys, Kira from Murder and More here. I am the solo host of the UK-based true crime podcast, where each Sunday I tell you about a murder, disappearance or serial killer. Murder and More is available to listen to wherever you get your podcasts, including platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Castbox and Stitcher. You can find us on Twitter and Tumblr at Murder and More, Instagram at Murder and More Pod, and on Facebook at Murder and More Podcast. Head over to murderandmorepodcast.wordpress.com to find out more. Thanks for that, Kira. Everyone should go and give Kira a listen. Murder and More is absolutely fantastic. Uh, we've also had a five-star review from E-Crime over on iTunes. Uh, they say, great host, great pod. These two produce a great podcast. Get your true crime fix. Thank you. Thank um, you and much. We've listened to the E-Crime podcast, and we like you too. In fact, I've left you a review as well, thinking about we it. We love so. you too. Yeah. As always, if you would like to leave us a review, and during lockdown getting a five-star review is like being showered with riches, you can do so at ratethispodcast.com forward slash STC. STC, as in Sublime True Crime. Thank you. We'll do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the show. And if you're a fan of the show, you can now support us on Patreon for less than the price of a cup of coffee per month. Uh, you'll get access to exclusive Sublime Extra Time episodes, where we'll be going into more detail about the cases that we've covered, as well as other goodies like photos. Um, simply go to patreon.com forward slash sublime true crime, and you can check us out there. I'll be honest, the Patreon stuff has only just started up, so there's not huge amounts on there at the moment. It's going to get added to. 
Yeah, be added to it over time. Yes. Um, and Sublime Extra Time is very laid back. It's just us two kind of chatting about stuff that there wasn't really time to insert into the main event. Yeah, very much like the main podcast, but without... even, even, <laughs> even looser. But even looser. <laughs> without any music and without any editing, unless we fuck something really truly up. So that'd be lots of editing then. <laughs> <laughs> so, what have you been up to this week? Oh, well, I had some days off this week, didn't I? You did? Oh, yeah, that was, seems like ages ago. I know. Had a few days booked off work. Obviously, we couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> but we um, spent some time tidying up the summer house. That's not a euphemism, by the way. Nothing. We really and we say summer house. It's a shed. It's not a shed. It's a fucking <laughs> summer house. You can tell it's got double doors and loads of windows. <laughs> you make it sound like a um, greenhouse. <laughs> Also, when I bought it, it said very clearly, summer house. Yeah, that's so that you paid 40 quid extra for it. If you'd have got the same size shade, <laughs> it would have been much cheaper. I'm not speaking to you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's been about it, really. We haven't done much else. Have you been working been for the working rest of the week? Again. Yeah, working, kids, school stuff. I have failed to write many podcast episodes. I think you've basically just slept for the entire week. Every yeah. single time I've wondered where you were, you've been asleep. Yep, it's been marvellous. This week... The case of the Dirty Harry Wannabes. In 1860, John R. Gow founded Gow's of Dundee, a shop that covered both the manufacture and retail of fishing tackle as well as guns for shooting game. Originally based on the Perth Road, it moved to Union Street where it remained until it closed its doors for the final time in 2014. In 1952, 16-year-old Gordon Johnston had joined the company as a trainee gunsmith. Over the following 37 years, he had slowly worked his way up to become manager of the store, a position that he then held for over 20 years. On Monday the 8th of May, 1989, Gordon's day started like any other day. Jumping off the bus at 8.45am, it was only a short stroll to the shop where he opened, just before 9am. Locking the premises up just 15 minutes later, the father of two went off to pay the gas bill and to make a small purchase in a neighbouring shop before heading back to his own store. At 9.20am, he was seen talking to two men at the entrance to the store, but although several customers attempted to enter the store over the following 20 minutes or so, they all found it locked up still. In fact, the store remained locked all day. So unusual was this that somebody called police to investigate, and by 5pm, the police had forced their way inside. Making their way downstairs to the basement, tracing a set of bloody footprints which headed up the stairs, they saw a body laying at the foot of the stairs. It was Gordon Johnston, curled up in the fetal position and laying dead in the pool of his own blood. He still had his watch on his wrist, and although badly damaged, it provided the first clue of the investigation. It had stopped at 9.21am. Upon further investigation, the police found that Gordon's back pocket had been turned out, the till drawer had been opened, and the safe had been ransacked. The post-mortem revealed the horrifying details of the attack that had taken place. 48 blows had been dealt to Gordon in the attack, the vast majority of them with an axe. Fuck me, 48 blows. How many blows does it take to, well, even make someone unconscious? Just I know. To the point just, where you want them out of the way. It's just absolutely unbelievable. And aside from anything else as well, now this is going to sound like a really horrible comparison, but when the children were small and we had a piñata, fucking hell, it was exhausting trying to do that. And that just made it a papé mache. <laughs> I'm sorry. So basically, imagine the same thing as a piñata, but with brain and blood spurting out everywhere, and no sweets at the end of it. 
it was so <laughs> grim. <laughs> what I was meaning was more the effort involved. I, I understand. <laughs> but with the piñata, piñatas swing around like a bastard as well, don't they? Because they're suspended from the... Ours eventually got put on the floor and whacked on the floor because it would not break. I've not seen many piñatas which haven't ended with either an adult taking over to break them open or just taking them down and going, right, just take yeah. the crap out of it. When an inventory was carried out at the store, it was revealed that among the missing items was £100 in cash, a jacket, some knives, as well as the guns and bullets that had been taken. The robbers couldn't have picked a worse time to steal guns. With the Scottish Conservative Party due to hold the Scottish Conservative Party conference in Perth, just 20 miles away, later that month, police feared the guns had been stolen with the Tory Party conference in mind. Fortunately, the conference passed without incident, but not before police implemented one of the biggest operations in Dundee history. Though they were no closer to catching the killers, the police interviewed everyone who'd been near or by Union Street on the morning of the murder, and the shop owners put up a £12,000 reward. What they got for their in-depth operation was reports of a young man with pointed features who was seen leaving the store at 9.50am. The man was said to have fumbled with the door handle as he left, before backing out of the store, bumping into pedestrians and then running off down Union Street, pulling a hood over his head as he made off with two gun cases. Wouldn't you pull a hood over your head before you left the bloody store? I would have thought so. Prick. But apart from this, the police felt that they were drawing a blank. They had considered that the perpetrators could have left the city by train, as the local station was just down the road from the store. But despite questioning hundreds of commuters and tracing people who bought tickets using credit and debit cards, they drew yet another blank. They then tracked down and spoke to everyone who had used a cash point near the shop, also without luck. There was even a jeweller's shop opposite Gow's which had CCTV installed. The police checked the footage of that with no success. I mean, how's your fucking luck? That's a lot of stuff to be going through. Mind you, 1989, the quality of CCTV. Oh yeah, I mean, they couldn't have made out anything, could they? like a blob. At all. But they're tracing all the people at the stations and the ATM stuff. Yeah. still coming up with nothing. It's... Unusual, isn't it? It is. Eventually, the police turned to Crime Watch, which, if you listen to the True Crime Enthusiasts podcast, is his favourite and much-missed programme. After the episode aired, it brought 100 new leads, but as each and every one was followed up, they all led to dead ends. Three months after the attack, police were growing despondent. Then seemingly, when they'd almost given up hope, they received a phone call. On the 25th of July, a man who refused to reveal his identity called the police. In a softly spoken voice, the man said that he knew who was responsible for the murder. One of the killers was his relative. He then put the phone down. Amazingly, the police managed to track down the caller. It took them a week, but somehow they managed to identify the caller as Lucio Mario Ionetta. There was no information at all about how they managed to identify him or how they tracked him down. So I'm just going to go with um, good police work. Not 1471. <laughs> Not 1471, <laughs> which you seem to be obsessed with. <laughs> um, 1471 for our international listeners. Yeah, so if um, it, it used to be that if you'd had a phone call and you'd, you'd missed who it was, you could dial 1471 and it would then read out the phone number of the person who'd called you. Yeah. And you could stop this from happening if you were stalking somebody iPhone by doing 141 before you rang them yep. and then it would block that caller ID thing. Yes. Yes. Still do it these days as well apparently I if you have a home phone. Yeah. Not that anyone has a home phone nowadays. No. My mum does. Bless her. Yeah. Actually my parents do. Yeah. Oh my gosh you called your parents on their home phone the other day. I was amazed. 
Only because the mobile wasn't picking up. Oh, no, that was really weird. You called them on the mobile and went, oh, they're obviously not picking up. I'll phone them at home. So I just left their mobile with them. As it turned out, yeah. my mum had the phone in her hand, the mobile phone, and was actually trying to use the internet to look something up at the time and couldn't answer the call while she was also doing the internet. <laughs> I'll make your mum not surprised. <laughs> Back to Lucio Ionetta. When being interviewed, he confessed that he had been the caller saying that seeing the face of the victim on posters in newspapers and around town had made him feel guilty as he knew information about the crime. Which just goes to show that those type of um, poster campaigns do work. Yeah. The face of Gordon Johnston seemed to be speaking to him, urging him to do something. Wanting to clear his conscience, he told police how his nephew, 21-year-old Ryan Monks, had turned up unannounced at his house on the morning of the murder, agitated and carrying a bag full of clothes. Stating simply that it went wrong, Monks had thrown his clothes on the floor and asked his uncle to burn them. Well, that's perfectly normal. I yes. can't, I've lost count of the amount of times I've gone round a relative's house with a bundle of clothes and gone, it went wrong, burn my clothes. Yes, and they naturally just burn them. Yeah. Oh, do, do you mean wash them when you said burn them? No, 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 put them on the fire. Oh, okay. Just yeah, make sure there's no misunderstanding. Pressing his nephew for more information, he eventually conceded to his uncle, quote, the boy in the gun shop, he was wasted, end quote. Without asking any more questions, because obviously why would you? Mm -hmm. Admitting to police that he wanted to protect his nephew, he threw the pile of clothing, which contained trainers, jeans and a jacket, onto his living room fire. I'm always amazed by these people who don't ask more questions. I know. I mean, I consider myself a nosy person at the best of times. But yeah. I'd be going, why, why do you want to burn this? What's that? Yeah. It's like Monica Lewinsky, and was it her mum put the semen stained dress in the freezer? Really? Did, have you not heard that? So no. when she'd um, finished doing the do with Bill Clinton, she went home, and I'm sure it was her mum, said, I'll put it in the freezer because you may need that in the future. It's like that. Really? That would not be high on my list of priorities. Oh, what's that behind the fish fingers? Oh, that's the president's cum stain. Don't worry about that. <laughs> Charming. <laughs> <laughs> Ionetta finished his revelation by saying that he only realised his nephew had been involved in a murder when he saw it reported on the news later that evening. He was even more shocked as, by chance, he knew the man who'd been killed. His father had been a regular customer at the shop. I'm kind of interested. What did he think his nephew meant when he said he was wasted? It only means two things, doesn't it? Drunk or dead. Yeah. Always ask questions, people. Always ask questions, people. As he got ready to leave, he shocked the police further by telling them that a young man by the name of Paul had accompanied his nephew that day and that he'd hired a Red Rover as a getaway vehicle. As you do. I wonder if they just hired the Red Rover so that when they finally got caught, it was a tongue twister. <laughs> Red Rover. No, that's easier to say than our podcast name. Which is? It is. <laughs> <laughs> For the new listeners, Elaine can't pronounce sublime true crime. You may have noticed that the only person who ever says the full name of the podcast is me. And even then, quite often you get it wrong. <laughs> I wouldn't say quite often. I do do okay. Uh, we got interviewed this week, last week, and it's got, sorry, gone live this week um, by Ariel. And we'll put a link up somewhere. Um, but even Ariel struggled, didn't she, when yes. she announced it? Ariel from Malice Podcast. Malice Podcast. Brilliant podcast. Yes. The police sprang into action. At 7am the following morning, two armed teams raided the houses of Ryan Monks and Paul Mill, aged 22 and 21 at the time. Hoping to find evidence linking the two to the robbery and murder at the gun shop, instead the police found evidence of a far more complex plot. 
the two men had concocted a plot to kidnap the elderly mother of a well-known local baker, Robert Brown. With a proposed ransom fee of £200,000, the pair had decided they needed guns to carry out their plan, hence the robbery at Gow's. Monks had previously worked for Ruff and Fraser, a local baker's in Dundee, which was owned by Robert Brown. His employment there had given him a good insight into how the family operated and how much they were worth. During the raid, police uncovered written notes detailing how the kidnap plot would be carried out. Yes, because that's what every criminal needs to do, is to write a detailed list. <laughs> oh, how many times have we said this? Come on, criminals, don't leave lists behind. <laughs> God's sake. They also uncovered pre-written ransom notes which detailed death threats and demands of cash from Robert Brown, with some purporting to be from the IRA. Fuck me, that's stepping stupidity up a level. Mm. The, they concluded by saying that if Brown didn't follow their instructions, he would be told where to find his mother's corpse. You've seen Dirty Harry, haven't you? Yes. Apparently it's a bit like the plot in that. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah? I did try watching Dirty Harry after I wrote this up, but I fell asleep. <laughs> Is that because you were watching it in bed? <laughs> by any chance? Yeah. <laughs> their plan had been to tell Brown to wait by a payphone, where he would then get instructions on what to do next. Monk and Mills had planned a route across Dundee, which would throw off any police trail. And to be fair, I've got no idea how they would do that, how they would throw police off. No. Maybe they left them a note. Seems to be their, uh, their go-to, doesn't it? It's a bit optimistic, though, to be fair, isn't it, for throwing off a police trail? Yes. Uh, they made a note of how long it took to get from one payphone to the next. At the final payphone, the plan was to cover Brown's head with some kind of hood, handcuff him, and lock him in the boot of his own car. Their grand schemes didn't stop there, though. The police also found various notes with details of post office cash delivery vans, including their routes and timetables. They had an audacious plan to hijack a van when it stopped at the sub-post office in St Giles's Terrace, which was just a short walk from where Monk lived. They would seize the driver and then drive either to a lock-up garage that Monk had, or to Templeton Woods on the city's outskirts, where they would then split the money. It was fast becoming obvious to police that the raid on Gow's was simply a way for the men to arm themselves in order to move on with their bigger heist plans. If their in-depth notes weren't enough evidence, the police also found a haul of other incriminating artefacts, including shotguns and ammo, combat-style clothing, forged police warrant cards, handcuffs, balaclavas, maps of Dundee with locations marked in ink, and magazines detailing guns and survival methods. So the usual sort of stuff that you have at home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've got a room dedicated to that, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. with all our uh, to-do lists, you know, bury body, yeah. clean car. Clean wheelbarrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when the police searched the house owned by Mill's parents, they found in the attic parts of gun barrels and butts which had been cut into smaller pieces. It also turned out that several days before the murder, the pair had hired a red rover, fitting it with false number plates before returning it after the robbery. That's probably the most sensible thing they've done. I think it probably is. Yeah. And I was just thinking then, because my brain was then going, but what about the blood? But there wasn't actually that much blood in the car. They weren't transporting body parts. No. Like but... most of the ones we've done so far. <laughs> there would have been footprints by the sound of it. They left footprints going up the stairs, didn't they? So... Yeah, true. Police were shocked at the sudden turn of events. Monks and Mill had no previous convictions, and without the confession of Lucio Ionetta, it's unlikely the police would have found the two of them. The pair both came from respectable families and both had settled down with girlfriends. Monks had two kids, with the youngest being born just two weeks after Gordon Johnson was murdered, while Mill was expecting his first child. I can't imagine having had a, a baby born to then go like a couple of weeks after that when you're still in that whole flush of, oh, small baby, 
So they go, either let's go and bash somebody's head in. Mm. Mind you, babies are first born. You see them born, they're covered in mucus and blood, and then you deal with their nappies for the first time. You're probably so used to a level of grimness that really? boxing someone's head in. No, I don't, no, I don't no, see no, that. No. <laughs> the two had been school friends together growing up, and though they had seemingly grown apart after leaving school, they'd become close friends again after both being made unemployed. Spending their time together, watching movies and talking about guns and crimes, they soon began planning their own series of crimes. So what they should have done is just planned a series of podcasts. Or planned getting a job. (laughs) (laughs) I never even thought that. (laughs) For the robbery at Gow's, the pair had come up with a series of bleep codes to be used on a set of two-way radios. The bleeps would be used by the one inside the shop to tell the other one to bring the car close by and for the driver to let the one in the shop know when the coast was clear for him to leave. It doesn't explain why there were reports of a man leaving the shop and bumping into people before heading off on foot. It's like they just forgot all of their planning. Yeah. Why make a list if you're going to ignore it? Uh, probably because they left a list behind. It's because it's like going to the supermarket and then just buying all sorts of random shit. Oh, Must get butter. <laughs> Must get butter. And you come out with everything but butter. Yeah. So, and if you go to Aldi, you come out with a, a saw and <laughs> <laughs> some garden chairs. <laughs> when questioned by police, each of the two men had almost identical stories, though each named the other as the killer. During a recorded interview shortly after being arrested, Monks confirmed to police that he was the getaway driver while Mill entered the shop to rob it. He continued, quote, I was sitting in the car, time had passed so I left the car and went into the shop and asked where the man was. Paul said, downstairs, end quote. He went on to say that he returned to the car and Mill joined him soon afterwards, changing his clothes in the back of the car as they made their getaway. So what happened to the bleeping and the blooping? Oh, stupid people. Time had passed, so I didn't bleep, I just sat there. Yeah. And then I went in. Mm. Mill then passed the warm clothes to Monks, who in turn asked his uncle to burn them. Why would Mill not get rid of the clothes himself? That seems odd to me. Yeah, I wouldn't, if I was involved in that type of thing, I wouldn't trust anybody to get rid of my uh, blood-stained clothes. No, not at all. I'd want to do that myself. Yeah. Mill was interviewed by Detective Sergeant Edward Boyle. Detective Boyle! Brooklyn 99999 <laughs> He initially told Boyle that he was nowhere near the shop at the time of the murder. After being pressed about this, he changed his story, saying that he had driven the car to the shop picking monks up on the way. Although he was complicit, he stated that he was not a part of the robbery. Even after forensic officers studied the CCTV footage from the jewellers opposite, they were unable to decipher which of the two was responsible, and this was even after they had the footage enhanced by the Dundee Institute of Technology. Potato filming on CCTVs. Yep, way back when. Yes. All they could tell was that a rover car containing two men had driven past the gun shop around the time of the murder. They were unable to ascertain who was driving. The trial of Ryan Monks and Paul Mill took place at Perth Sheriff Court in November 1989. Giving evidence, Anne Monks, then aged 22, told the court that a week after the robbery, her husband had revealed to her, quote, I've got some involvement and the person who was with me could put me right in it and stitch me up if he wanted to. End quote. You notice I didn't do the Scottish accent. I did I notice that. I cannot do that. It was a pretty damning quote, that. Yeah. She went on to say that her husband had told her he'd been the one to drive to the shop while Mill carried out the crime. Dana Henderson, aged 21, who was dating Mills at the time of the robbery, revealed that she knew of his plan to rob the gun shop, saying that she tried to persuade him not to take part. On the evening of the murder, Mill met her after work and told her how the plan had gone wrong. Pinning the blame firmly on Monks, he told her how he'd played a passive part in the proceedings while his accomplice had carried out the dirty work. 
Speaking to the court, she said, quote, The plan had been to hit him, but not too hard, just to knock him over. But Ryan told Paul that his head burst open when it was struck. End quote. How do you determine what level of power to put into some kind of beating to just knock someone over rather than knock them out or kill them? I don't know. Never having smacked anyone on the head before. Ill-equipped to judge. On being shown two balaclavas and two pairs of handcuffs, which had been found in the flat she shared with Mill, she told the court that they sometimes used them during sex. Each their own, but I can't imagine any scenario with anyone that I've dated where suggesting they put a balaclava on during sex would not end up with me getting a black eye. Absolutely not. <laughs> Here, darling, wear this. Fuck you. <laughs> Do I take the paper no bag off sex. first? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be a bit of a turn off that. <laughs> Bionetta also gave evidence at the trial, selling the jury how he had helped his nephew buy a set of car licence plates in the days leading up to the murder, being careful to say that he was unaware of what his nephew had planned at the time. That's still got to be dodgy. If someone went, I need to buy a set of licence plates, you'd still ask a few more questions, wouldn't you? Well, when you buy licence plates, don't you have to give details of the car that are going on and all sorts of other things and register it with the DMV and whatnot? So presumably they bought them dodgily. Well, these days you do. I think back in 1989, there wasn't that quite that restriction. Was there not? No. Mm, maybe not. Monks later said that his uncle handed them over to police so that he could claim the £12,000 reward for their capture. When it came to sentencing, the jury decided that each man was equally guilty. After just two hours, they found both men guilty of all charges. Judge Lord Mayfield jailed each of them for life. So. Robbery of a gun store, planned kidnapping and ransom, planned theft of the security van, as well as a man axed to death with 48 axe wounds. How long did each man serve their life sentences? And I'll give you a clue. The men received two year sentences to run concurrently for the kidnapping and post office van robbery plans, as well as illegally shortening a shotgun. So Mill was released after how many years? Mill was released after just 13 years. Monks. After 14. It's just shit, isn't it? It really is. I can understand the shorter sentences for the planning because they didn't obviously get to actually carry them out. So no crime was technically committed because they hadn't actually done it. But they were clearly building up to it. But yeah, murder. I think for me, not just murder, but the, the whole, the 48 axe wounds to the head, yeah. it just screams. It's not just a murder, is it? It's no. not, not like you've just killed someone. You, you brutally... Murdered He's gone into some type of frenzy at that point. Yeah. The murder weapon was never found. As for Lucio Ionetta, the man whose phone call to police led to the arrest for the two men, he never claimed the £12,000 reward. Yeah, so sod you, monks and mill. Yeah, he only did it to get the money. No, yeah. I think he was a man with an actual conscience. In a weird footnote to this case, Ryan Monks caused upset after he was released from prison by posing naked and smiling for a charity calendar for Positive Steps, a Dundee-based charity. Monks, then aged 37, portrayed Mr October, wielding a claw hammer and with a toolbox strategically placed for modesty. At least he wasn't holding an axe. Fuck's sake. That's just obscene. Um, I did try very, very hard to find the calendar online. I also (laughs) tried to find the calendar but couldn't find it. Me neither. <laughs> I'm wondering though that I think did did he was he working for Positive Steps? I'm pretty sure that he works for them. Really? Or worked for them at that point. So Sorry, it would be difficult like... to get a job in a charity of the type that would say it doesn't matter if you're convicted. Yeah. But then 
that's extra weight as to why they shouldn't have owned it in the bloody calendar. Yeah, well, I was going to say, to, to work for them is fine, but I think if I had murdered somebody brutally and then they said, I was working someone, they said, oh, we're going to do a calendar, can we put you in here? I certainly wouldn't be going, yeah, give me a claw hammer. Yeah. Like, can I just hold a daisy or something? Yeah, <laughs> but then I suppose it, it comes back to he served his time. It shouldn't be restricted for that kind of thing. I mean, he should, but... But I think your moral code, mm. surely, if you had one, your moral code would say... <laughs> your moral code, bearing in mind that you've acted someone to death. <laughs> yeah, but if you have, supposedly, if you have... So if you've served your time yeah. and you've been rehabilitated mm -hmm. and you're back in society and you're employed, surely to God, your common sense would tell you that you don't want to be posing with a weapon or you a potential so. weapon. Yeah. After that, you think, oh, no, that's a bit crude. And that is the case of the Dirty Harry wannabes. What are your thoughts? If a member of your family asked you to burn a pile of clothes, how would you react? And how would you react if your partner came home and confessed to being part of a crime? Ooh. We'll cover these questions on Sublime Extra Time. But you can let us know. You can email us, dan at sublimetruecrime.com or elaine at sublimetruecrime.com or you can reach us via the Facebook page to search for Sublime True Crime if you're enjoying the series, please leave us a review. Preferably a five-star one, please. As it helps us to reach more people. If you want to leave us a review, you can do it at ratethispodcast.com forward slash STC. STC as in Sublime True Crime. We'll do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the podcast where we can. And if you can think of any cases you'd like us to cover, let us know. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>